Okay, my name is Ted Eton. I'm 42 years old. Today is April 4th, 2011. We're at the Kaiser Permanente Capitol Hill Medical Center in Washington, D.C. And my relationship to Regina uh, is co-mentor slash community resident of Washington. Um, my name is Regina Holiday, and I am 38 years old. Today's date is April 4th of 2011. We are in Washington, D.C. at the Kaiser Permanente New Medical Center. And my relationship to Ted is he is an amazing guru, guide, and muse to what I do within health. Someone else called me a muse recently. Okay. All right, Regina. So um, I wanted to ask you a few questions, um, and starting with t um, total health. Let's talk about that. What does total health mean to you personally? Oh, wow. Um, total health would be actually viewing the patient or member in their entirety. So we don't just treat the symptoms of a disease or disorder. We treat their entire body, but not just the body, the mind and the soul as well. We view a person in their entirety and then figure out ways that we can help them with all their aspects. Great. And I was asked to um, give my answer to the question before I ask you the next question. And so my answer to what total health is I thought about along the way is, is, is this conversation. So it's the ability that I have to walk from my home down to here, take public transit part of the way, and sit with you and be able to do what I want to do because I have my health. Yeah. All right, let's, let's talk about your family story. Um, it's April 2011. We actually met almost two years ago. Um, and we met on a day that you came to meet uh, myself and a group of people, and you brought with you your husband Fred's medical record. Describe what, what, that, what that looked like and felt like and that day and why you decided to bring that and what was going through your mind on that day. Well, my husband's medical record I had fought very hard to get access to, and once I did have access to it, began to compile it and organize it within a large three-ring binder. Um, that was three inches thick, and it was navy blue and very worn looking. And I even joked with my husband that if he had much more medical care, I sort of quoted Jaws, we're going to need a bigger binder, <laughs> you know, because it, it was getting very full. And um, my friend Christine Kraft actually said, I want to introduce you to some people who work in Health 2.0, and I think they would like to hear your story. And I had no idea what Health 2.0 was, but I thought it must be something about health and the Internet, and if Christine says I should meet these people, I should. So I talked to my husband, who was in hospice care at the time, if he'd be okay with me going away for five hours and having this meeting. And he said yes. So I grabbed my binder and wore a nice little church outfit and went down to um, the offices where we had the meeting. And I took mass transit to get there. And it was a warm day. It was May 27th. And... um got in and I met all these tall people. I'm only five foot tall. And they were, everybody around the table was so tall and they seemed like almost like gods above us all. You know, so far along in their life path, so involved in their goals. And so I sat down at the meeting and it had, it had actual schedule and I was the, I was going to speak at three but the meeting began at 12. So I was listening to all the other presenters present and I had brought my my husband's laptop computer to take notes so I could look official and stuff. And <laughs> um, I just sat there listening to what they had to say about health 
you know, Susanna Fox with the Pew Research Center was there speaking, and Christine was speaking, and um, Nancy was speaking, and everybody was speaking about what was going on in health in the United States. And then at 3 o'clock, I got to speak. And um, I just sort of pushed my binder onto the table and was like, this is my husband's medical record that I fought so hard to get. And it was like silence just dropped in the room. And everybody just leaned forward and started listening to a real-time crisis that was happening right at that moment. And the meeting just stopped. The meeting changed from being a meeting about what's going on in everybody's life in health to being what can we do to change things and to push this story forward so everybody in the world can hear how this family was treated and thereby in this microcosm of, of care, this one story, see the story of so many other people. And it was just amazing. And it was just everybody came together in that room and became this powerful force to create a movement. Well, I actually didn't know until this time that you were, you were on a respite from taking care of your husband that day. And I, I think the, my recollection is very similar in that we all kept, I think I kept asking you, so this is happening right now, yeah. right now which yeah. was so amazing. And I remember thinking you were pearly because you were wearing this gray suit and you had this pinkish tie and you had a Mac in front of you that was like lighting you. And it was just like, wow, he's godlike. <laughs> you know? It was just, you know, like all these people who would listen to what I had to say were in this room. And it was astounding because I had fought so hard for somebody to be willing to listen to what was going on. And no one was. And that was a moment where everything changed. So tell the audience, what, what was actually happening? What was your husband's care like up to that moment and until he died, and what did you decide needed to happen as a result? Well, it began back in January. Uh, in January of 2009, my husband was having a lot of pain, and he had had a cough, and um, he went to the emergency room in late January because of extreme rib pain, and they said at the emergency room that he had broken a rib coughing and to follow up with this doctor, and he followed up with this doctor, and they gave him pain medication. And um, that was January. And then in February, the pain increased and became more extreme. And um, they gave him more pain medication. And then it went into his back by late February, and they gave him more pain medication. Um, this entire time, they weren't giving him more laxatives. So he was getting constipated and very uncomfortable and was very embarrassed to say something to his doctor about the situation he was in. And I said, honey, I think this is the result of the drugs you're on. If we, You just need to get like on laxatives and everything will be better. And so he had to go back again to get that prescription. Um, by March 13th, the pain was so excruciating that it was heading into a weekend. And I said, honey, you hurt so bad. So why don't we just gather up the kids and let's go to the ER and we'll just wait so somebody can see you and, and help the pain. And the ER was beautiful. It had all these blue couches and stained glass windows, this pretty gray carpet. And it was beautiful. And we sat in the ER for three hours while somebody, waiting for somebody to see my husband. And um, after about three hours, somebody from Express Wound Care came out and said, we can't do much for you. The ER... The MRI's backed up, and so is the CT scan, and no one will see you tonight. The most we can do is an x-ray and um, give you some pain meds until you go to your doctor next week. So they gave him more pain meds, 
and told us to go back to the doctor. And the following week, I went to his doctor and um, with my husband. And when we got in there, I was amazed that she wasn't weighing him because I know he didn't weigh as much as he used to. And they said, we don't weigh every patient that comes in. And then we sat in the chairs, and he hurt so bad. And the doctor said, I wonder if you're depressed. I said, yes, my husband's very depressed because he's hurting all the time. He's in such pain. And I want an MRI. I'm worried there might be something wrong with his kidneys. She said, no, it's lower back pain. He probably has a protuberance of lumbar 5 based on his x-rays. That's probably what's causing him to hurt so much. Um, this protuberance isn't usually a problem with most people, but occasionally you need back surgery. I said, well, we want an MRI, and we want it tomorrow, and we want it to be open because my husband's highly claustrophobic. So we went through a directory of potential places you could have MRIs and found one in only Maryland. And my husband drove all the way to only Maryland, and they did a great job, and they gave him an open MRI, and they handed him a CD. And he took that CD and drove it all the way back to the doctor's office and handed it to the doctor. And this was on a Friday. And the following Tuesday, at 11 o'clock, we get a phone call. It's the doctor's office. It's the doctor. And she says um, she wants us to make an appointment with an oncologist the next day. And, you know, I really didn't even know what an oncologist was at that point. I had to look it up on the Internet. And I couldn't quite understand why I was having... My husband was having to see a cancer doctor for um, protuberance of lumbar 5. So the very next day, we went to the doctor's appointment at 9 o'clock in the morning. And at this point, Fred's barely able to walk. He hurts so much. And the doctor says he's in so much pain that why don't we just admit him to the hospital? Because if we admit him, then he's going to get the tests faster, and he's not going to have to move so much between the different tests. And that's what we did. And so he was admitted into the hospital on March 25th. And then I went back to work at the toy store because that's where I worked. And then on March 27th, I was selling toys and helping people with art projects. When the phone rang at the store, and my boss handed me the phone and said, Reggie, it's for you. And he looked worried. He said, excuse me to the person I was helping. And then I heard Fred on the phone, and he said, Reggie, I'm so scared. The doctor was just in the room, and he tells me I have tumors and growths and something about a three-centimeter tumor in my kidney, and I don't know what's going on. So could you please come here as soon as you can? I left work as fast as I could. I got to the hospital within 30 minutes. But by the time I got there, the doctor in charge of my husband's case had left town for a medical conference and would be gone for the next four days. I went around to every nurse, tech, doctor, anybody who worked there and tried to ask for information about my husband's case. Found out he would have two additional types of tests. Didn't know what the results were. Four days after we had additional testing and four days after Fred had been in the facility, a non-call doctor, who was also an oncologist, came in the room, and she was very busy. I remember her looking at things and checking a chart, and, and then we were just waiting for her to say something, and, and she didn't say anything. And we said, well, finally, what, did you, do you have the results of those extra tests? You know, the bone scan, the PET scan he had? And she just looked at us. She was like, you mean nobody's told you? 
I said, no, no one's told us. She said, well, it, it spread everywhere. It's in his lungs and it's in his bones. And so that night I went on the internet. And when I went on the internet, I found that if it had spread to those locations, and it also was his kidney, and it also was a growth in his abdomen, well, then he was stage four kidney cancer. And the likelihood of surviving more than about two to three months was not very high. I found this out on the internet. Not from a doctor. No one was willing to talk to us. I spent weeks trying to find out information about my husband's case, trying to see the medical record and actually see the diagnostic results. One day, the oncologist came into Fred's room and said, I understand your wife's asking questions about this case. And he said, yes. And then the oncologist said, well, if little Miss A-type personality wants to ask questions, she needs to come to my office hours. And I did. And when I got to the office hours, he never closed the door or stopped taking phone calls. He never turned the computer to face me. He never stopped talking to the nurse about the parking problem in the parking lot. And I had printed out this little piece of paper that showed my husband's anatomy. And I was writing down the points of metastases so I could try to help provide him care. And he, the doctor was just talking so fast, and he was using words I didn't understand. And I said, please slow down, because I don't understand everything you're saying, and I'm trying to write it down so I can research it. And he said, I don't like people who do Internet research. I said, I'm sorry, but I don't have a background in medicine. So my only way to understand what you're saying is to research. And so he said, that's right. I'm the one with a medical degree. And he made me feel so small. From then on, I kept fighting for information, and I went down to medical records. And I asked for an entire copy of my husband's medical record. And I said, really? You want all the pages? And I said, yes, all the pages. I said, okay, well, it's going to be 73 cents per page and a 21-day wait. And I was astounded. I said, you mean, my husband's been here for weeks. At this point, we're, you're, you, this could be hundreds of dollars. They said, yes, and you're also agreeing to duplication. If we duplicate anything, you have to agree to pay for it up front, regardless of our error. I couldn't believe it. And they were going to make us wait 21 days when he was already so very sick. It was just insane. So the very next day, the oncologist comes in my husband's room and says um we've decided we're gonna send you home on a pca pump well i'd done my internet research and i knew what that meant and then he was sending us home to hospice without having the bravery of saying it so at that point the doctor left the room and my husband burst into tears and he just turned over to me and said you go after them regina you try to get me care and I spent five days trying to transfer him to another facility. And after five days, we were finally transferred, but we were sent with an out-of-date and incomplete medical record and transfer summary, which meant that once Fred got to the new facility, they could not provide him care for six hours while they tried to cobble together a medical record using a phone and a fax machine. The very next day, the doctors at the new hospital sent me back to the old hospital and said, we would like you to get an entire copy of his medical record. <laughs> I said, I've tried that. <laughs> they don't give it to you. And they said, no, they'll give it to you now because you're just a courier. You're getting it for us. So I went back as a courier, and they printed out that medical record in an hour and a half. For free. For free. And I carried it in the big manila envelope all the way back to the new hospital. And um, they read it for about an hour and then gave it back to me. 
I said, you said you needed this. <laughs> you made a big deal about it. So, oh, we've read it. Um, there's nothing we can do with it in our system. So we're giving it back to you because if you have access to the medical record, you're going to be able to make sure he has the best care. And I took that record and I read it in about three hours. And I was furious because that record was full of actionable data that if we could only read it in a real-time fashion while Fred was being given care, he would have had a better medical outcome. And through that fury, I decided I'm going to change medicine. I'm going to make it more visual. I'm going to work on making it where patients can access it and read it. And I'm going to try to do everything I can to change the national agenda when it comes to patient care. And that was due to getting to read that medical record. Mm. Your memories are very vivid from that time. Oh, yes. And it's interesting when people go through that, how much they remember, right? Well, you remember painful experiences very, very well. Everything's incredibly crisp. Mm -hmm. And um, when you talk about the way the physicians um, treated you, your tone changes a little bit. You seem a little bit more empowered, like you know, you, you know or you understood that that wasn't right and that you wanted to change that. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I, I felt horrible the way we were being treated. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I, I often speak about the way patients are treated by some physicians in the light of child abuse. It's a very, very similar feeling. Um, you are a disempowered individual that is depending upon the care of a person. So a child who's being abused by a parent is very much like a patient being abused by a doctor. You depend desperately on this person to treat you nicely. And when you tell other people outside of the, the group, the small group, that you're not being treated nicely, most people don't believe you. So you may have to say again and again and again what's happening to you. And most people, after saying two or three times they're being abused and nobody doing anything, just give up. And what I saw with so many patients, and I've spoken to so many patients and heard their stories, is a lot of people have given up. They just say, that's the way it is. This is the way we're treated. And they just put up with it. And I refuse to put up with it. This is not okay. We have to change it. So, and when today when we got together for this interview, you presented me with your new business card. Yes. Um, which actually shows that what you call the darkest moment in all of this. Yeah. Can you describe what's on there and why this was the darkest moment for you? Well, the, um, the picture on my business card is called Office Hours, and it's specifically about that moment when I went to meet the doctor and attend his office hour um, meeting. And it was my lowest point because I'd been trying so hard to take care of my husband in any way I could. And I was having to be very quiet in the way I did it and not abrasive or offensive or aggressive in any way. Because um, he was really scared that if we made a waves or complained that he'd get worse care. Like he said, um, you know, at McDonald's, if you complain about your burger, they're just going to spit in it. He's like, if I complain in a hospital... What do you think they're going to do to me? You don't stay here all the time. I have to be by myself at night. <gasps> I'd be so scared. Did he say that? Yeah. So in the image, you are... Do you need some Kleenex? No, I'm fine. Sorry. 
um, so in the image, um, the, the piece that you created, you're actually kneeling at the physician's desk. The physician looks to me like he's on the phone. You're holding up with your two hands um, you, the, the list of questions, I guess. Yeah, my little notebook. And there's, um, looks like a woman in purple scrubs, and then there's a, a woman behind her in pink scrubs with her uh, hand on her forehead. What's going on there? Well, the, the t two other women in the figure, that in the scene are women that actually came into the room while I was trying to speak to the doctor. I mean, he never closed the door, so it never felt like to any of the staff this was an actual consultation. Mm -hmm. So people just kept wandering in. And um, the woman who's leaning on the door is holding a set of keys because she's complaining that she couldn't park her car. Um, and she's, like, yelling about the fact that there, there's people parking in the lot that aren't supposed to. And he starts talking to her about the parking lot situation. And the other woman is trying to hand him information about another patient's transport later that day because she was going to enter the chemotherapy suite. And here's her transfer packet that he needs to look at. So they talked about that while I was there. <laughs> you know, it's just like, what is going on that you're talking about all these mundane things at this horrible moment where we're, this is the one time I get to talk to this doctor about how far has this disease progressed within my husband's body. And they're just, it's insanity. I mean, it's, it's, it's people not taking how very serious this moment is. And if you look on the back wall within that painting, um, there's a picture of his family in a portrait. Because behind his head, there were two things behind his head. And one was his family portrait. And the other was his medical degree. And I kept staring at them while I was trying to talk with him and thinking about, you're destroying our family right as we speak. You're destroying them. So if you look behind the painting of his family superimposed into the wallpapers, our family, my husband, my children, we're just as important as you. Our family's story is just as important as yours. But there was the feeling within that room that it wasn't. That we were no one. It didn't really matter. And so I was just this little retail sales clerk at some little toy store. What could I do to change anything? Who was I to mess with? And so from that moment, I just thought, he's... He's not going to be able, people like this are not going to be able to do this to other people. We have to change the entire system because this is not about a bad doctor. This is about a system that lets bad doctors do horrible things to people. Because my number one complaint was we weren't getting access to information. And somebody like him should be made the gatekeeper to determine whether we can have peace of mind. And how, so... This is all going on. Your husband's dying. You have a family to support. Uh, how did you get through this? Why, why are you the one of the many that was able to create the conversation? Why are you here? How did you end up here two years later? Well, um, like one of the doctors said when I was there and dealing with things, he, is, he said, this holiday, <laughs> you are not behaving typically. <laughs> If it were my wife that was over there with a sick husband, she would be over in the corner crying, and that's what she should be doing, rather than trying to make sure your husband's okay. <laughs> it was just like this patronizing attitude. Um, I'm like, well, yeah, I may be not behaving typically, but 
who are you to judge me? You know nothing about me. You know nothing about my life. You can't, you can't determine what I'm going to do and w- how that might affect things. Um, I am a person who survived child abuse, hmm. you know? And so the hell that you're putting me through, I've been there before. And I, I lived through it. And when I was 17 years old and my dad got incredibly violent and to the point that he almost killed our whole family, I had to make a choice. Um, and I made a choice to take my little sister and run away from home and go get in a, a shelter and then testify against my own father. That's what I did. So because of that action that I did when I was a young person, I was empowered to do it again. It's like I saw my husband as my little sister, hmm. and I saw the same things happening again. And then if I didn't do something very soon, they were going to kill him. And when you're put in that position you find the power. Hmm. And since it was so bad and it was so heartrending, it made me open up to the point where there's nothing I won't say anymore. There's nothing about society that can stop me from telling my story. I can't be embarrassed. There's nothing because I lost the love of my life. So what can you do that's going to make that worse? You can't. So it's opened me up and now I can say everything, you know? <laughs> Well, speaking of saying everything, I asked you about, this is a painting about your lowest point. It's now two years later. Tell me about your highest point. What's, what's the greatest moment you've, you've experienced since we've met? <sighs> that is really hard. There's been some amazing moments. Um, you know, we have done so much to further the rights of patient access. But I guess the standout moment would probably be on July 13th when I got to speak in front of the Department of Health and Human Services on the day of the final use announcement of stage one meaningful use. And I was just as important a person on the stage as Regina Benjamin or Don Berwick or David Blumenthal or Kathleen Sebelius. I had equal setting and standing in the eyes of the crowd. And that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Because in a panel like that, there was a patient voice. And it wasn't just a figurehead. It was a participant. Mm -hmm. And that was a beautiful day. I would say that was a pretty high moment for me, too. Well, now how has your family story made an impact, do you think? Wow. I mean, I've been speaking nationwide this past year on patient access to medical record and patients' rights and patient safety. And it's just changing things. I mean, it's like this tide. It's part of the entire patient-centeredness movement and patient safety movement. And it's a story that stands out there that people now throw out, like, you know, the Fred Holiday story or the Regina Holiday story. And people actually reference it, which is wonderful because they say, this happened. It can happen. Therefore, it could happen to our patients. And we need to do everything we can to stop that. So that's been just amazing. And then, of course, the art, like the visual imagery that I've been doing has helped so many people understand what it is I'm talking about. Because maybe they're not auditory learners. Maybe the story itself isn't enough. But then you throw in that visual that's so disturbing and powerful that it gets them. They're like, I get it now. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. between the two things, it, it's changing things. Your art is a very powerful tool. And I'll say from that day that you, you met us, you captured accurately, I think, what, what was going on, which was we were at a steady state where we thought we had a some level of success. And then you took us to the next level, I think, even before we had seen your art, but we, we, were, we were discussing it. And then you actually produced so much amazing work. Um, what in your journey so far has been expected for you in terms of the impact of your art, and what has been unexpected for you? 
Um, well, I expected to work on changing legislation about patient data access. I expected to meet the president of the United States and speak to him about this. I expected to testify before Congress. Those were all things I expected doing the first mural. And they all were things that came to be, <laughs> which has been very exciting. Um, you know, it, it's one of those, my husband in the hospital is like, when I was reading The Audacity of Hope, I was reading The Audacity of Hope in his hospital room. He's like, why are you reading The Audacity of Hope? <laughs> I said, because I want to have read it before I meet the president. He's like, Reggie. <laughs> you know? I said, we are going to change things in this country. It is going to happen. And so he saw that whole process beginning while he was in the hospice care. And that was a beautiful thing. And then as far as unexpected, I have been really pleased how many corporate organizations have come forward. You know, have come forward and been like, we want to be part of this. We want to we want to be involved in this movement and these paintings and what you're doing. We agree with what you have to say. That has been really exciting to see. Mm. I did not expect some of the organizations that have come forward and said, we want to be part of this mission to do it. And it's been really beautiful. Do you think your art sort of gives people an outlet? So instead of transferring their feelings about wanting to do stuff um, onto a person, which sometimes is hard for them because of all of their considerations, to instead look at a piece of art and admire it. I've seen people just focus on the art and admire it and say, you know, I want to think differently. Yeah. I mean, that, well, what's the beauty about art is that it's so subjective. I mean, I bring something to the table with the painting itself, and then you bring the whole other amount to the table. <laughs> it's what you see in the art that continues the dialogue. The other thing is art um, isn't like a legal document. You know, there's no text for the most part. It's mostly a visual image. So people get away with supporting it and not really mm. worry about content as much, as much, mm-hmm. you know, it, it allows them to be a little free. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know? I've seen that. I've seen both sides. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that's been very exciting to see as well, that, that it has that kind of power. And um, you in this journey also um, be, um, became to know Kaiser Permanente. Yes. And what, what have you learned about Kaiser Permanente's uh, commitment and, and what do you want to see Kaiser Permanente, but all of medicine do differently in the future? Well, I had not been a Kaiser member prior to meeting you. Um, and actually, at our first meeting, you're, you said, why aren't you on Kaiser? And I said, I don't trust them because there's no double check mm-hmm. against your system. I remember that. <laughs> and, remember that. Um, and, you know, for, for a while I had that feeling, and then I started actually researching systems. And I'm like, what is my number one thing? What do I consider the double check? And I'm like, well, I really consider the double check the patient itself. So Kaiser gives patients almost total access. There's some things still they have to give us, like doctor's progress notes and nurse's progress notes, medical reconciliation reports, and real-time data access while hospitalized. Mm -hmm. Those are some things still coming, but they're on the road toward it. That's their goal. And um, so I feel like if if the double check is myself, then I prefer that system to a system where there's a facility and an insurer, and I'm just torn between the two. Um, because I found with my husband's care, I went to his insurer and I said, you know, they're not taking care of him. I will back you on a fraudulent claim on this facility. And they just wrote it off. They would rather eat the $100,000 wow. than pursue a fraudulent claim of care. And what kind of double check is that? That's a horrific double check. <laughs> so it made me change my view. So now I'm a Kaiser member and I really like the portal and being able to access my own information and I love their philosophy that it's about healthy living and supporting you and I love the fact that if you forget 
to schedule an appointment, or if you don't schedule an appointment, they call you up <laughs> and give you a hard time about the fact. So when are you going to do that appointment? <laughs> you know, they really are serious about maintaining your health. I never had another provider ever call me up and say, you're due for your exam ever before joining Kaiser. And I've talked to other people who are Kaiser members. They're like, oh, yeah, I need to go. <laughs> they called me up. So it's one of those things that it, it's just the whole, their whole philosophy is something that I've been very excited to be part of. Let me ask you, I've, I gave you a pin today from uh-huh. our Southern California area where they're doing a lot of work on preventive care mm-hmm. and saving lives by calling people up and having them come in. And one of the things they said was that, um, you know, you can call people and write people and, and it's some, there's just some people that we don't know how to reach. Um, do you know patients that even though they get called or reminded, don't come in for their visits? And what would, you, what would your advice be to physicians about how to reach some of the unengaged in healthcare, even when you know that they, they need to come in and you can call them? Um, well, this would be the thing that surprised me that they don't do is I've never gotten an email reminding me of an appointment. Okay. Ever. Okay. And um, even though I, I've liked Kaiser, I've never gotten a Facebook message either. Do you think that would reach some of the unengaged? Yes. Tell, tell me more about that. Well, I mean, a lot of people are just ditching their landlines, and they're ditching their cell phone answering. I mean, they're not actually answering their phones. So you're completely missing out on an entire segment of the population, but they're very plugged in online. So you need to have more of an online presence where you communicate to people via, like, for instance, if you emailed somebody with, these are three options of when you would, almost like a Google Docs or, you know, these are three times that you could come in, could you please click which one you would like to do? Oh, I see. You know, make it where the threshold for participation is so low that person's just going to, yeah, <laughs> that time works for me. That's good. You know, because otherwise, I love the appointment desk at Kaiser, and they're incredibly nice people. But it does take, like, seven minutes, you know, to between... Oh yeah, Monday. No, that doesn't work. And Tuesday at four. Yeah, I got something. <laughs> you know, so it's you, like the back and forth. Right. There's a back and forth while they're trying to say it, and you're walking in front of your calendar and looking. So if it were put onto the computer, I think it would speed things up, and also you'd have more people actually May scheduling appointments. Please, with Maria Antello, please sound zero for the operator. Maria Antello, please sound zero for the operator. Thank you. Do you see a role of art? You know, so there's some, some patients that don't know that they're at risk or they're not ready to make those changes. Do you see a role of art as a way of engaging some of the unengaged? Yes. I mean, we need to have way more visuals than we have, and they shouldn't be such stock photography. It drives me absolutely bonkers. When I go to so many medical sites, it's all stock footage, and everybody's smiling. Everyone's always smiling. It's like, come on. In reality, not everybody's always smiling. Please show some sick people. Please show people in pain, and please show real people in pain. I mean, I would totally hand you a HIPAA release that would show myself in pain. Go for it. There are people out there who would do this. You don't have to feel like you've got to get some actor to come into a studio, light them perfectly, and <laughs> show pain. So, so it's one of those things that really start showing real people and how we really live life. The other thing is in, consider paintings that depict this kind of stuff. Like if so, you maybe it's uncomfortable to show a person as sick as in-stage cancer in a few photographic realism. So there's artists who paint that. You know, consider using some artistic images because oftentimes within art, we can show the true depth of pain, but we show it without photorealism. And in some ways, capture more of the wow. soul doing that. And consider putting that kind of stuff out there. That's powerful. That's good. Any, any final thoughts? I'm sure you and I will be having many, many talks in the future, I hope. Uh, and I'll be walking to them, I hope, yes. as well for a long yes. time. As um, I do as well. <laughs> Um, any thoughts for me or my colleagues at Kaiser Permanente or just um, patients? What would you tell them about your journey two years later? Never give up. 
Never think that you're not important, not able to create change. You can't. Just, just go out there and do it. There's so many stumbling blocks in our world where they want to stop you. Things want to stop you. Don't give in. Um, and from a patient or a doctor point of view, you know, I know it's hard. Yes, it's hard. It's hard to work ridiculously long shifts and still maintain a social media presence from a doctor or a regular person, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But sometimes it's worth doing. You know, we're, we're part of a giant movement about making sure people are treated better. And what could be more important than that? Nothing. Nothing. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you this, for this wonderful project. Sure. Um, Fred was a hilarious guy who wrote his dissertation on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> um, <laughs> he loves Steven Spielberg, loves Stephen King, major pop culture guru, quoted commercials, knew the entire film of Star Wars from memory and watched it in a theater 270 plus times. I didn't know that. Yes. Um, so he was just this hilarious guy. And we met at Oklahoma State University in a scenic painting course. And he was a graduate student, and I was like a second-year freshman. And um, I was the, one of the better artists in the class, and he was w one of the less accomplished artists. But we both were procrastinators, so we both stay up the night before the project was due and paint all night. And I hated him, <laughs> and he hated me. <laughs> we would yell at each other and throw paintbrushes at each other and sponges across the floor and one time he poured an entire thing of like a can of soda on my head but it really wasn't soda it was water but I thought it was soda so I yelled at him I mean it's just like we were like third graders on a playground um so we really had this ah always yelling and I was helping him with his art and he was helping with understanding pop culture and um then December came and our class was over and he went home to Maryland for his break and I was still there and we missed each other so I called him up in January and I said would you like to go out to a party and he said, sure, since you don't drive, I can give you a lift. Okay. And we get to the party. I'm like, would you like to dance? He said, I don't dance. <laughs> and I was just like, so finally I had just had to kiss him so he could figure out I was actually interested. And he kissed me back. And so um, we were engaged about two months later. Wow. And we were married within the year. And so we were married almost 16 years. Um, but, yeah, it was just great. We were always, always debating, always that was one of the hardest things of losing Fred, was that there was this amazing person I talked to all the time who was always challenging me. And now I need the entire internet <laughs> to replace him. <laughs> you know, to get that level of engagement. Is that even enough? It's not enough. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, I used to use Fred as Google. I mean, I used to be able, oh, who was that person in that movie about, you know what? And he's like, you just say the name. <laughs> now I have got to go to Google. <laughs> so, Yeah. Um, he was just a great guy. How did you go from hating each other to liking each other? Well, that's often people who are very passionate. We are very passionate. I'm a very passionate person, so is Fred. So um, there's two sides, one coin. I mean, it's we were we would get in huge fights. I mean, just gigantic fights about very esoteric concepts, and. But that was great because we so passionately felt about whatever we felt about. And then we would resolve in the end. But it was one of those things. It was always a ch life was a challenge. And it was a challenge that you could overcome. And we just loved each other's passion. I mean, it is one of those things that can be hard to go without when you're used to it. When somebody loves something so deeply, then they oftentimes go the other direction so deeply as well. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's, it's the way some people love. 
Some people love softly, and some people love with passion. So we are very passionate. Um, we had mostly been insured. Um, I had been insured through my work most of my adult life and not, none of my childhood. My husband had not been insured most of his adult life, and he was insured his childhood. Our children were not insured until recently. Um, so, so our experience had been that we had to pay 100% out of pocket for everything. Wow. Yeah. And, it was, and I get really mad when people say those, those uninsured people who are just you know, take, mooching off the system. I'm like, I don't know any of those people. I know tons of people who are deeply in debt and paying off medical bills by credit cards. I know those people who, who do payment plans for years. I know those people. You know? So it's like don't, don't discredit all of us who are uninsured because we were paying and paying and paying. Um, as far as a mother who had two children, I was really amazed at the second hospitalization that they wanted to put Pitocin in my line without permission, that I had to advocate for myself while in labor. That was astounding. So I had some eye-opening experiences prior to Fred, but I had never been engulfed in a system like we were once he was hospitalized. And that sort of changed my view in the world. I was like, I want to see hospitals run as well as a retail toy store. I want to see safety standards the same as a preschool. Those are things that are not currently available in the hospitals that we were in. Thank Thanks. you.